welcome to the view from the North Curve podcast covering all things North Curve Celtic. I'm your host, Kev. Big thanks to everyone again for tuning in. I hope we're all keeping well. We're back with you this time around to round off our wee series that we've been doing throughout the year in the 40th anniversary of the hunger strikes carried out in the H-Box back in 1981. Firstly, if I could just quickly go over and cover a couple of things that have been happening with us and give the rest of our membership a wee update. So, at the start of the season, we'd spoke about aiming to carry out three meetings, three members' meetings. Uh, we'd spoke about aiming to do two displays within the ground and also two charity projects. So, so far, it's been going pretty good. Halfway in, we've had one members' meeting, which went brilliant. There was a... Spoke on it before, there was a lot of new faces, a lot of new ideas, a lot of feedback as well, which is good. Um, we also carried out our first display back in October at home to St Johnson, which again went superb. Everything from, you know, the design at the start to the actual hands-on graft and, and setting it all up was done by the troops within the curve and the membership which was, was good to see. Charity wise, a lot will have seen and, and also helped us with our Christmas toy drive appeal which we carried out a few weeks ago. We are we managed to raise an amazing uh, six thousand and ninety pounds in cash. That was split three ways between Glasgow Sick Children's Hospital the Brightest Star Charity and to the With Kids Charity who a lot will probably know better from the Christmas Tree Presents Appeal at the Forge in Parkhead. We also raised a massive amount of toys on the day which again went to the Brightest Star Charity Christmas Appeal with the likes of the hospital unfortunately were unable to take you know physical stuff actually inside with, with all this uh, COVID stuff going on. So I just, again, on behalf of our guys and girls, a huge, huge thanks um, to the rest of the support. There wasn't a lot of time between between that toy drive and the, the Green Brigade's own annual food bank. Uh, so I think it was only a couple of weeks, so it was... It was amazing to see, you know, so many help me out, bringing actual toys along, or just, you know, firing some dough, a couple of quid, plenty of folk, even even more than that, into the, the buckets that we had out. So I just, big, big thanks. Um, we're also now approaching a thousand members, thousand sign-ups uh, for the season, which has, has been brilliant, uh, brilliant going forward, obviously. Again, with everything going on and, the, you know, all these restrictions and stuff as well. And it's a nightmare that we've, we've no games for a bit now, but hopefully, you know, it'll not be too long until we're back in. And then we can we can kick on with the rest of the stuff that we've planned to end the season. So back on to this episode. After speaking with Tommy McCourt previously, we, had, we also had Tony O'Hara on. 
With Tommy McKinney on and more recently we had Jim Slavin on. We are now pleased to welcome Bick McFarlane on for our last episode and to say just a huge, huge thanks before Bick starts to him for, for taking the time out to come and speak with us. Bick was born in 1951 in North Belfast, a Doyne area. We are at around the age of about 19, like many young working class men and women at the time. He soon became involved in the Republican movement. He was then arrested in both in 1975 and 1978, where he joined the Dirty and Blanket protest while in Long Kesh in 1981. And famously, while Bobby Sands went on hunger strike within the box, but took over the position of OC, of the Provisional Prisoners, where he remained in that position for the entirety of the strike. In 1983, Bick was involved in an operation that saw 38 volunteers escape from Longkesh, where he was eventually captured in the Netherlands with Jerry Kelly, another one of the escapees. He was returned to prison where he went on to serve a further 10 years, eventually being released in 1997. Since his release, Bick has been involved with a number of different groups, including uh, an ex-prisoners group, which helps to reintegrate former prisoners back into society. He's also an active member of Sinn Féin, who's probably... Known to a lot of the listeners listening in for his music and his Republican singing. One of the, the famous tunes that he, he wrote called Terrorist or Dreamer gave our own boys some, some perfect lyrics a number of years ago when we carried out a certain display against AC Milan. So it's an absolute honour to, to have Bick on speaking with us, you know, sharing his experiences from his own life and, and rounding off wee series that we've, we've been doing throughout the year. I hope you've all enjoyed um, listening into 40 years on from the strike. So I will just pass on to Bick. So um, I suppose we'll just go into this specifically around the 40th anniversary of the hunger strikes. Um, I find it very, very difficult to take in that, that, that it's 40 years ago that we faced into that awful period, you know, for many of us, the worst year of our lives. It was certainly a, a very harsh, a very difficult period, difficult decisions being made. Ten courageous young Irishmen gave their lives on struggle, uh, gave their lives on hunger strike, a gruel and hunger strike, let me tell you, uh, from me visiting the, the, the prison hospital uh, pretty regularly during the course of the hunger strike. And, uh, you know, I have to say that uh, the determination uh, that they displayed, you know, you know, it, it was inspirational. You know, it certainly gives strength to, to me and to everybody else. And there was this bond that was built up with the hunger strikers and with, with, with all those blanket men and, and women in Armagh prison who were on that protest that year. It's a different sort of, it's a different feel coming through that uh, protest period. And just to go back to the beginning of it, uh, I actually had been arrested and, and placed in the cages of Longcash, which were these uh, 
if ever you've seen the, the, the World War II films about the prisoner war camps, like The Great Escape and stuff like that with Steve McQueen, exactly the same, you know, wire fences, Nissen huts, porta cabins, you know, watch tires, machine guns, and all the rest of it all surrounded. So I, I was actually in there with political status. And what, just to set a bit of a background to that there, because political status is at the core uh, of the whole hunger strike period. The British guaranteed or granted political status. They called it special category status, but that was back in 1972. There was a hunger strike going on in Crumlin Road Prison. And at the same time, or coming into the crucial period, the 30-odd day mark, <clears throat> there were negotiations in Whitehall by the British government and senior Republican figures that were brought over for negotiations. There was a truce during, the, I think, the last part, latter part of June, the early part of July uh, in 1972. And, uh, you know, people like Martin McGuinness, Jerry Adams, uh, were part of that delegation that were over there. Uh, in uh, in London, talking about uh, the, the the potential for 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 a bigger ceasefire rather than a truce, and uh, the first item in the agenda that the lads put to them was, they said to the Brits, "Well, if you want to talk serious and you want to do business, resolve the prisons issue, uh, grant the lads political status because this is what it is: political conflict. Anybody involved in that uh, struggle, anybody involved in prison in that struggle." Are political prisoners or prisoners of war. So the Brits uh, <clears throat> agreed, but they wouldn't call it political status. They called it special category status. Now, in the legislation under what was known as scheduled offences, when we appeared in court, scheduled offences were for people, and in brackets it said in the legislation, offences committed, I'm not specific about the, the exact words, but offences directly relating to political objectives. So it, it was covered as political offences. But the difficulty for the Brits <clears throat> was with hundreds of people interned without trial. You know, no courts in terms of without trial, 1971. I think we all remember, well, some of us are too young to remember that there, but some of you, uh, people will know it applied specifically to Republicans and Nationalists at the beginning. No Loyalists arrested, although they were doing some damage, uh, attacking Nationalists, killing Catholics. Uh, the British interned on the first week three to four hundred Republicans. A lot of them were academics, um, you know, school teachers, trade union people, and people who had been involved in conflict in the 1940s and had retired or whatever. But you had political status when you were in there. And uh, those who were arrested and put through the court system for protesting for political status, it was guaranteed in 1972. Now, what had happened was this. Because it was an international focus on the entire conflict here, which meant the internees and sentence prisoners, People like Amnesty International, the International Red Cross, other international bodies were keeping an eye on the situation. And for the Brits, looking at this here, that did not politically sit with exactly what way they wanted to portray this conflict. So what they needed to do was to criminalize it, to depoliticize the conflict, take the international attention away from it, 
and get wired in to uh, to dealing with it in a way that would uh, that would take the attention away from it from an international perspective. Uh, and in order to do that, they no sooner had granted political status in 1972 that they began to work their way around taking it away again. And in 1973, they introduced the Diplock court system. This was a single judge up, up until that period. You see, you would have went to court and there would have been a jury. And uh, for example, you know, if you would have went to a court in Derry and you had been caught in a car with three submachine guns, four rifles and a half a ton of explosives in the boot, the jury in Derry might have said, well, that driver really didn't know it was there. And, you know, he got, he got off, you know, you know, the ridiculous end of things. But um, the conviction rate was, in the, prior to the Diplock courts coming in, the conviction rate through the courts was about 42 or 43%. Brits couldn't have this. Lots of guys getting off. Uh, the Brits needed to put people in jail and they needed to withdraw political status. So what they did was they introduced the Diplock courts, which meant single judge, no juries. If you went into court with a black eye and a broken nose and a cop get up and said, self-inflicted, the judge automatically accepted that and sentenced you. So numbers began to build up and then coming into 1976, in order to get all the international attention of it, to get the Red Cross or the, the Amnesty International, to get all them away from it, they ended internment. They said, internment is finished. There are no more political prisoners. Now, they didn't say anything about those who were sentenced. So from March the 1st, 1976, Anybody arrested on or after March the 1st, 76, was classed as a criminal and had to go through the criminal regime, which meant the hitch blocks that they were building. They built eight of them, and uh, they started phasing people into these and putting on, you had to wear a criminal uniform. You did not have a command structure. They said you were no longer political, etc., etc., etc. And there are some real weird uh, examples of this here. There's a couple of lads up around the Balahi direction. Uh, they're twins, right? These are twins. Both were in Iraq. Both got arrested. But one of them got arrested in February. And the other brother got arrested two weeks later, after March the 1st. Both of them were on the same charges, but both had membership charges as well. And the one of the twins got political status, was moved into the cages with us, and the other brother didn't get political status because one of his charges was, they were saying, after, he was a member of the IRA, after March the 1st, so he didn't get it. So twins on the same charge, one got political status and one was treated as a criminal. So we were pointing all these, anomalies out and all these ridiculous aspects. Now, in the midst of all this here, what you had to remember was the torture centres like Castle Ray, Golf Barracks, Strand Road and Derry, uh, Gerwood Barracks in, in, in Belfast and, and, and the different places, uh, people were getting tortured left, right and centre. And the, the case of the hooded men is internationally recognised. It's still ongoing. 
the Irish government actually took a, a case in 1976 about British torture. They won the case at the European Court. The Brits then, of course, appealed it. And uh, they changed it to, uh, they dropped the word torture and they said inhuman and degrading treatment. I mean, what else is, is torture than inhumanly and degrading people in, in, a, in a barracks? So in that sense, sir, you had lots of people coming in without political status. And a decision was taken. And it was the first the first man, Kieran Nugent, whom you may all be aware of. There's a big mural up and down the, the Falls Road. Arrived into the H-Blocks in September of that year. And uh, they handed him the criminal uniform. And he says, I'm a political prisoner. And they said, well, there's no political prisoners in here. And he says, they are, they're just 50 yards away over in those cages, sir, which I was, that's where I was at the time. And uh, they said to him, no, no political prisoners. you got to wear the uniform. And he says, well, if you want to put that on me, you may nail that to my back. And that was the first day of the blanket protest. So the blanket protest started with Kieran Nugent. And he got brutalized. He got battered. He was isolated. He had nothing in his cell. He had no clothes. Absolutely nothing. No visits. Now, Heather, as his nickname was, was was, uh, was a tough Falls Road kid, right? real hard jaw, you know. But he was, uh, as far as I remember, he was still a teenager. I think he was 19, going on 20, when he was very, very young. And you had the mate of the, uh, of the guards, of the screws, battering him regularly, trying to get him to conform. And he was joined week by week by a lot of other prisoners, a lot of them very, very young, particularly a lot of the dairy lads used to come in, uh, you know, 17, 18, 19 years of age, lots of them very, very young, were getting brutalized. And it was only when the numbers began to build up uh, that there was any sort of solidarity there that you, 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 could, you could lean on other people, I suppose. You couldn't see anybody. You were 24 hours per day, seven days a week locked behind your cell. And uh, if you got out to go to the toilet or to get a wash at that stage, you'd have got a pattern on the, on the way out and the way back. So it was tough, tough going. And the only way that you could have got a visit was to put on the, the criminal uniform. So over in the cages, we advised in order that, you know, they would have some form of contact where they would be able to uh, link with outside, you know, link with their families. And you remember as well, some of these guys came in and had kids, you know, people like Bobby Sands, Joe McDonald, Mickey Devane, you know, us three hunger strikers that died had very young children, very, very young children, you know, weren't even 10 years of age. Some of them six, seven, eight years of age. They had, they had kids really young. And, uh, you know, when you think of it, the, the, the difficulty in trying, first of all, to deal with the, the, the horror of the situation that you're in. And then, you know, because I remember being on a visit and seeing somebody out, you know, kids up on the visit crying and you sort of saying to yourself, thank Jesus, I'm... I'm on my own and they don't have any responsibility. So it was very, very difficult for many, many people. Uh, now, the difficulty was this, uh, and th th this is a point that I make to many, many people, because people have asked me, how come a prison protest lasted five years and cost 10 lives in hunger strike? Generally speaking, and you can see this all the time, whether it's in England, Scotland or America, you know, prisoners on the roof, slates thrown off the roof, they're up there for three days. Governor or whatever civil servants, 
negotiate with them. Yes, you'll get an extra something in your parcel. Yes, there'll be better quality bedding or, you know, some improvements. They come down off the roof, they're locked up for two weeks and things move on. What you have to remember is this. The reason for the existence of the H-blocks was chosen by the British. The British felt that in order to defeat Republican struggle, what they had to do was to criminalise it. And they felt that after looking at all the options, you know, because, I mean, they were fighting on the streets. They were getting hammered left, right and centre. See where I came from in Ardoin, we were cutting the crap out of them all during 1971, 72, 73. Now, we weren't as, uh, as efficient coming into the mid-70s as other areas. But then you had the thing like, like East Tyrone and South Armagh and places like up around Derry with Francis Hughes and, 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 and people like that there, Tom McElwee. Fantastic operators, you know, so the Brits were getting hammered left, right and centre. They could not contain it. So they felt that the best way that they could get out of it, the best way that they could um, get out of it was to criminalise it, undermine the support base, damage the morale and put as many IRA people in prison as possible. So that's why the hitch blocks were built. That's why political status was removed. That's why criminalisation took place. So it's like a conveyor belt system, special powers of arrest, special interrogation and torture centres, special courts with one judge and a special prison to put everybody in, which was the H-blocks. So uh, with, with, with no recourse to, to anything whatsoever, you know, you just could not get out of that situation. It was difficult. It was hard. Uh, and I know that, that, that many prisoners didn't, uh, go on the protest and, and I always make the point and, and some of them are bitter recriminations with some guys and I sort of say look this is a voluntary protest lad you know people we volunteer we volunteer to join the IRA we volunteer to do this protest you know you can't hold it against like a lot of mates of mine played the football didn't bother getting involved I can't hold that against them the same way I can't hold it against anybody who doesn't feel able to, to join the, the protest but the protest was brutal, it was hard, and it went on for five years. Now, the reason for that was simply this. Success or failure for the Brits, the political ramifications of success or failure for the Brits and for Republicans was absolutely massive. And I mean massive. There was nothing else. It was one of those situations that... The only way people have said, why don't you put the gear on and, and try and do something? That's like surrender. You could not surrender to that. Kieran Nugent saw that coming in. He was not going to allow himself to be criminalized so that he could be used to undermine our struggle, to undermine our support base, to, to damage the morale of our volunteers, to attack the integrity and the credibility of our struggle. And that's why it continued for five years. And that's why it went to a hunger strike. Now, during the early part, during 19, from 76 right through to 81, but particularly 1978, Cardinal O'Fee had come in on a visit and had gone out, made a magnificent statement, I'd say, after visiting. In fact, he was physically sick when he visited one of the Armagh boys in, 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 the, in, in the cell because there was rotten food in the corner with maggots crawling through it. And uh, I mean, you would wake up in the morning and you have to you have to brush maggots off your 
of your blanket they were wearing, you know, and it was just horrendous. So he made this statement, very, very good statement, very clear statement. And people felt that because of the attention, because of someone like him uh, making this statement and asking the Brits to do something about it. But he was a very lone figure within the Catholic hierarchy in Ireland, most of whom would be pretty right-wing conservative, as, as would be the, the, the church in England. You know, you get the odd exception, the odd radical here and there, and, and the odd radical in, in, in Ireland as well. But uh, O'Fee was playing a lonely furrow in, in terms of that, but he totally supported the, the blanket men. But when nothing came out of it, uh, there was a lot of international attention on it as well. And the relatives action committees had been informed then, you know, the, who were mostly women and girls, family members, etc., uh, protesting, marching, trying to draw attention to it. And when none of this uh, yielded the results that we needed, uh, it brought us into 1979. And 1979, to me, going through that year, was like almost non-eventful in terms of things happening, apart from inside where brutalization increased. You know, his block three and his block four in particular, the lads in there got absolutely brutalized morning, noon and night, week by week. And it was crazy stuff altogether. And it's when we, we decided that we had to do something about it. And at this stage, there were about 300 people on the blanket protest. And what was decided was that we would uh, raise the issue of hunger strike with the leadership outside. We decided that hunger strike was the action that we needed to follow. And Cardinal O'Fee was made aware, look, the lads is going uh, to do a hunger strike. However, His Holiness the Pope was arriving in October of uh, 1970, and he was arriving to Drogheda. And this, for the Catholic Church in Ireland, was the most massive thing, probably in the history of, of the Church, that the Pope would visit. And Cardinal McPhee, our, our hunger strike plans would have put people on hunger strike around, they'd have been 30 days on hunger strike around the time of his visit, which would have been coming in the crucial period. So what happened was he, he approached us and uh, he asked the Dark and Bobby Sands, um, Brenton Hughes at that, the dark Brenton Hughes was the OC and Bobby Sands was his second in command. And he asked them to defer any hunger strike action because it would be huge, it would be a huge embarrassment to um, to the people visit. And that if, if if we did that, then uh, sort of postpone the action that what he would do along with Bishop Edward Daly from Derry, that they would use their good offices to lobby the Brits, uh, lobby Maggie Thatcher in terms of uh, meaningful reforms or, or doing something to alleviate the situation. So we agreed. And uh, one of the stipulations that he put on it was, and uh, I wasn't one of the people who agreed with this, and uh, he said that as part and parcel of that there, that the IRA would have to stop executing prison guards. And uh, the IRA agreed it. Um, a lot of us in the prison weren't too happy about that because these were people that were torturing us. And as far as I'm concerned, if you put on a uniform and you decide to torture somebody during the conflict here, then you need to get your justice search. And uh, I would have been uh, well in support of IRA actions against anybody 
who was torturing uh, political prisoners. But anyway, uh, the IRA agreed to it and they stopped executing prison guards or screws. Uh, but it was about six months or more that, that Cardinal O'Fee was lobbying and doing this and doing that. And nothing, nothing, not one single solitary thing. And then when we decided that, look, can't continue with this any longer, we're going to have to make a move, the Brits released a statement saying, and uh, if, any of, if any of you have ever seen the film with Michael Fassbender called Hunger, where he plays the part of Bobby Sands, right? You can capture a moment in that uh, where Maggie Thatcher has just said prisoners can have their own clothing, but that's not exactly what it was. So when Cardinal O'Fee heard this, prisoners can have their own clothes, because that was one of the key, in fact, it was number one on the list of five demands that would have helped to bring an end to the situation, that... Uh, Maggie Thatcher had made this statement. Cardinal O'Fee came back from a conference, welcomed this statement and saying now there was a, uh, an onus on Republicans, now that they were having their own clothes, that they could, you know, respond and, 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 and make some gesture in, in terms of ending protest. And Maggie Thatcher says, I'm sorry, I did say that. And he says, you said you had, you know, prisoners could have their own clothing. No, 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 no. I said that Her Majesty's prison service would issue clothing of a civilian type. So, in other words, Maggie Thatcher was going to give us a uniform by with a different colour. And that's that's all it was. And that blew everything out of the water. And and, and we moved. We moved on, on, on hunger strike action right after that. And if you saw that film, Fassbender is sitting in the cell as he is presented. He's just been presented with these clothes. And I, I remember these clothes. And see, when I'm dealing with Americans, I say to Americans, look, I have to say, like, I used to watch the golf in the 1970s. And with all due respect to American golfers in the 1970s, that's what they give us for trousers. Checkerboard, checkerboard trousers. Martin's laughing there, and I'm not surprised, but you know what I'm talking about. Now, there were pink sweaters. I'm deadly serious here. Lemon sweaters, checkerboard shirts, checkerboard trousers. And we just couldn't believe it. And that's where you see this thing about where your man, the, the director, Steve McQueen, captures it in hunger, where Fassbender is sitting in the cell. He's fuming because he knows. And there was a wee laughter from the screws as they were handing over the clothes. Ah, home clothes, my bollocks, you know. So, and the whole thing just explodes. And that's the minute that we moved uh, for hunger strike action and in, in coming into... Uh, the start of, by the end of uh, 1980. So what happened was, um, I'm going to move quickly through this here so that it give you time to get into questions and stuff. Um, it was put around the blocks that there was no other way out of this. Now, we had a fierce argument. Uh, well, not me particularly. I, I was actually uh, a PR person at the time. I was the guy that wrote the letters and, and, and organized people you know, writing to people and, and, and doing a bit of propaganda. That was my forte at the time. The Dark was the OC, Bobby Sands was there, there was a couple of others in around that, that, that body of people. But when they sent out and told uh, the IRA Army Council where we're going to have a hunger strike, they nearly had kittens, they nearly had a heart attack because they were aware, as we were, of, you know, the huge politically charged atmosphere around this hunger strike. This was make or break. 
you're either going to make a struggle or you're going to get broke. And the IRA outside did not want, under any circumstances whatsoever, prisoners at the forefront of struggle, determining what the actions were going to be in terms of, you know, you know, making gains or losing points in, in this struggle. And, and quite frankly, they're right, because no struggle in the world should have prisoners at the cold face of a struggle. They shouldn't be at it because you cannot be making decisions that will affect or, or can impinge upon the credibility, the credentials or the integrity of struggle while in prison. You need to be out, you need to be involved, you need to be on the street, you need to be politically uh, outside. But under these circumstances, there was no way out of it. And we argued with, 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 with outside, with uh, the political leadership and the military leadership, we argued top, down, in and out, until it came to, to, to the question in terms of they were saying, you know, we disagree with this. We, we think it's crazy. Uh, people are going to lose their lives. You know, the integrity of the struggle is lying on your shoulders. And, you know, we can't have that. So finally we said, okay, fair enough. Send us in an alternative. Tell us, tell us what we need to do to get out of this. And they were incapable of doing it. They did not have an answer. They could not give us an alternative. The only alternative was to say, give me the criminal uniform, I'll put it on, we surrender. That was the only alternative at that stage, nothing else. And uh, we were confident that we had people, you know, wh whose resolve was absolutely first class in terms of dealing with this. So what happened was uh, they finally agreed and a hunger strike commenced with seven people. We chose seven people. Uh, in a sense, to represent the six counties plus the free state. So they were taken uh, on as wide a sweep as possible, excuse me, around the, the six counties. Uh, word was put out through all the blocks. People were asked um, to consider it and put their names forward. Now, we ended up at one stage, I think it was in excess of 80 people had put their names down for hunger strike. And uh, Bobby Sands in the dark and, and the boys went through it. And, and Bobby Sands actually expected to be on the first hunger strike, and he wasn't. He was given the position as OC. And uh, I still continued in, in, as the PR person. So writing statements, doing, doing all the rest of it. Um, and one of the key reasons why you couldn't, I mean, you had somebody from Belfast, the dark was from Belfast, you can't have two or three people in Belfast and no, nobody from Derry or nobody from Armagh or something like that, needed to be spread out. So that hunger strike commenced on the 27th of October, uh, 1980. And it lasted for 53 days or right through to about the 18th to the 19th of December. Now the, the support base was massive all the way down the line. You know, people were writing, people were demonstrating, people were uh, uh, marching. Thousands of people were on the streets. People across there in Scotland, any of you are old enough uh, to be aware of it, may have even been on some of these, at some of these rallies, some of these marches, some of the, uh, the, the, the events in that uh, relating to the hunger strike. And uh, it, 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 it was massive. The impact was, was huge, but it still wasn't moving the Brits. Uh, however, towards the end of it, the Brits introduced uh, like what we call a back channel. 
in terms of there were like an MI5 agent and he dealt with someone in Derry who then in turn dealt with Martin McGuinness who then contacted Jerry Adams and then contacted the prison. And this is the way this was going, a very convoluted way of the potential for bringing an end to the hunger strike. And in the midst of that there, there was a priest from the Redemptorist community, that would be Clannard Monastery, would be the Redemptorist, but this, this, this man was up from Dublin. And he was nicknamed the, the, the Angel, we nicknamed him the Angel. So in any of the books you'll see, you'll see the nickname the Angel. Uh, priest called Brendan Maher, right? Cracking, cracking guy. He came up, visited me, visited Bobby Sands, told us what was happening. He would act as a mediator or go between receiving information, passing it on. And uh, to cut to the quicker, but what actually happened was the, the, the day that Sean McKenna went into a coma and was transferred from the H-Block hospital the prison hospital and transferred to the Musgrave military hospital was the same day that the same evening that Brendan Maher arrived. He met, the, the, the whole thing about it was we learned afterwards, he met some British agent at the airport, handed documents, was to bring them into us. And this was all going on. We were aware that things were happening behind the scenes. And what exactly happened was when Sean McKenna went into a coma, we were aware that documents were getting brought in and that uh, favorably, if you read them favorably, there was an opportunity to get out of the situation uh, whereby the Brits wouldn't have egg in their face and we could you know, legitimately feel, okay, we, we, we've got our clothes, we can move along, that this may suit. However, what happened was this. They moved up in the uh, prison hospital to save Sean McKenna's life. So they terminated the hunger strike this was within an hour. This is all what happened within one hour of documents arriving. And uh, when the documents arrived, Bobby Sands went to the prison hospital. Sean McKenna was in the uh, Musgrave Military Hospital. A mate of mine had been taken out of the prison into the hospital with a burst ulcer, and he was in the next ward. And he was able to tell me in the aftermath when Sean McKenna, McKenna came out of the uh, coma, he was all tubes and all sorts of wires coming at him. And he was pulling the tubes out, the feeding tubes, pulling the wires out. I'm in hunger strike. I'm in. So they tried, the surgeons tried to get this mate of mine to convince him that the hunger strike was finished. But my mate wasn't aware because he had been out for two days in Muscovy and wasn't aware what was happening. And he thought it might have been a Brit ploy. So he said to me, I didn't want to do it. He said, but the surgeons came back after two or three hours and said that, um, that having a priest come in or somebody had got in or, or, or the, the Republicans had sent an emissary in to tell him the hunger strike was finished. But the hunger strike finished and the Brits refused to implement anything that was in the document that they sent in. Wouldn't implement one single solitary thing. And we had to go over the Christmas period where you sent up your own clothes because it was in the document that prisoners could have their own clothes given certain circumstances, but the Brits set that aside, would not allow them in the door. And uh, it ended up that we were in, in negotiations with the IRA outside, and they were saying, look, try whatever you can to get through this Christmas period, to get out of this period, because this was the 19th of December, and to try and get us into a, a working sort of situation, which we tried very, very, very hard. And 
Bobby Sands negotiated with the, the senior governors and the president and told them, look, you know, we can move into clean cells, we can paint, we can look after the food. We'd never said we would never do maintenance. We can do all that. And it ended up in the middle of January, Stanley Hilditch, who was the, the chief uh, governor, the number one in charge of the H-blacks and uh, the cages and in charge of the protest, said to Bobby, look, here's the bottom line, Sands. See until your men come out of those cells, put on this uniform, and do what my officers tell them to do, you're never getting anywhere. And again, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So we moved right away, contacted the, the army outside, and said to them, we need to, we need to go on a second hunger strike. Now, what had happened, actually, was we had moved a wing from H5 and a wing from H3 into clean accommodation to get furniture in and to go out and get haircuts, to get showers, as an act of good faith that we would be prepared to move along with the regime. And uh, so we just ended up, we racked, we racked everything, racked the cells, racked the windows, did the whole lot, and we were back to absolutely nothing in the cells. Uh, some of the lads got pretty badly hammered uh, over the course of that uh, escapade. So again, we had the argument with the, the army had said about um, the hunger strike, and again they were saying you can't, you know, you can't really, you know, it hasn't worked. You know, what are you trying to do? So the proposal was again, well, how are we going to get out of this? There's no other, there's no avenue to get out of this situation, and we are certainly not going to surrender. So we come up with this idea that a hunger strike would be staggered. It'd be one man followed by another two weeks later, followed by another two weeks later, followed by for the first four. And uh, the onus of responsibility would not be collective. It would be on the individual on hunger strike that if he wanted to terminate, he could, while someone else was still there. Uh, and if he chose to continue, that was his, uh, his situation. Now, what happened was uh, the army agreed to it. Bobby Sands was the first one to go, and after a visit in January, just before, well, obviously the hunger strike started in March, we also had decided that we would end the no voice protest, so we would we would move into clean cells because that wasn't going to be a factor anymore. And he came back from a visit one day and he says, look, uh, I've just told the lads outside that um, you'll be taking over when I go on hunger strike, at which point I nearly had a heart attack, right? And I says, listen, I do the letters, I'm not the second in command here. I am pretty much down the lane. I says, uh, you've got a vice OC, you've got an adjutant, you've got intelligence, you've education. I says, I'm a PRO. I, I write letters. That's what I do. And he says, no, I need you in, in this. You know what this is all about. I says, so do they. They're, I mean, we all know the politics of this. And I said, what about Shanna Walsh? I says, Shanna Walsh is sagging in command. I says, he's been in the prison and out. He's been in the cages and out. He's back in. I says, and he's the vice OC. I says, he's a nice little man. And he said to me, you're, you're, you're forgetting uh, one, one, one crucial aspect there. I says, what? And he says, Shun is my best mate. And I says, what has that got to do with anything in here? And he says, well, you see, if this hunger strike comes to a crisis period and the Brits decide, okay, we'll make an offer. And he says, see if I happen to be a death's door or, or incapable of, of, of negotiating, he says, um, he'll not let me die. 
And I says, and, and you're saying that I would? Oh, yeah. He says, you have to. That's the way it works. You have to do it. You have to be in a position to say, no, that's not enough. And if they say, well, that's it, then I die. And that's the way it works. So I was a wee bit taken aback by the fact that, you know, this is the type of person he thought I was. Right? I thought I was a little bit more mellow or more easygoing than that. But uh, he ended up, I ended up in that position. And uh, I stayed in that position throughout the, the full year. And what happened was a number of things happened during the course of the year uh, in terms of support ways, in terms of contact within the prison, in terms of delegations coming in. Uh, support, as I say, was massive. People everywhere. Uh, there were letters coming in. There were demonstrations. Uh, I mean, the British Embassy in, in Dublin was besieged. Uh, it was all sorts of different things. Uh, then delegations began to arrive into the prison. Uh, during the course of the hunger strike. And I suppose the first big one would have been the uh, European Commission for Human Rights Centre delegation. And uh, we had, well, Bobby Sands had put down a proviso that if anybody was coming in to negotiate, we required two people from outside as uh, advisors for negotiations for termination of the hunger strike. And those two advisors were to be number one, Jerry Adams, and number two, Danny Morrison. And Danny Morrison was our head of PR. He was a press officer for Sinn Féin and for the Republican movement uh, in Belfast at the time. But I went up to the prison, I was brought up to the prison hospital, and uh, I met these commissioners, and they said, we're here to meet with uh, Bobby Sands. And I says, well, Where's Jerry Adams and Danny Morrison? And they said, well, what's the issue here? I said, the issue is we need um, two advisors from outside if there's going to be any negotiations or any discussions in relation to the termination of the hunger strike. I said, it's pretty clear. Bobby Sands has made it abundantly clear. And they said, yes, we, we, we've been made aware of that. Uh, and I said, well, do we get Jerry Adams and, and, and Danny Morrison? And they said, well, the British have said they're persona non grata in the uh, prison. And I says, so they're not getting in. And they says, I said, there's a phone there. I says, sitting beside you. All you have to do is phone. I says, and just, uh, I give you a number from Falls Road office. I said, you just phone them and tell them. I says, they'll be here in 20 minutes. And he says, no, the British have said that under no circumstances whatsoever were either of the two of them to cross the front gate of, of, of the prison. So I then said, look, can I see Bobby Sands? And, um, the NIO, who were they had their civil servants in the jail. Yep, go ahead. So I went into the cell to visit him. This is the last time I saw him. And uh, Jesus, I tell you, it was a frightening experience. Uh, there was a medic there. Uh, I remember him, okay, in a white, white coat, just at the door of the prison, of the, the cell that he was in, and in the prison hospital. So when I went in, he was, he was sort of propped up on pillows on the bed. He didn't recognize me when I walked in because his sight was feeling, you know, tremendously, like it was just gone. And, and we're talking here, that, that this could be about a week or, or 10 days or so before he died. So he was in uh, pretty bad conditions, very, very weak. He was propped up in the bed and uh, his hearing would, he could hardly hear. And it was only when I drew close to the bottom of the bed that he recognized who it was. And I sat down. And a chair beside the bed, and uh, 
he had a jug of water beside the bed and uh, a radio. And uh, he, he was talking in a very, very labored manner that uh, he could hardly uh, speak. And uh, we had a short conversation. And he asked me, he says, uh, where's the big lad? He always called Jerry Adams the big lad. Is the big lad here? And I says, no, he's not. Um, the Brits have refused access to him and Donnie Morrison. And at that point, Bobby Sands knew that was the end of it. Because with a body as influential as those European commissioners, being there to either facilitate a negotiation or to be part of, of some mechanism to bring an end to, to the hunger strike, the fact that they we would have said, look, we need Adams and Morrison in to get through these negotiations. And when the Brits told them no, then Bobby knew, well, they're not they're they're not real, they're not real about this. These commissions are only here to, you know, tick a box, you know, stroke a piece of paper on a pen, a pen on a piece of paper, and uh, it's not going to happen. So he he knew at that stage then that it was it, it was uh, final. Uh, and and about sort of rewind a wee bit to, to the the day he was going on the day before he went on hunger strike. We were at mass in the canteen. A sort of a measure of the individual that um, we had already discussed a replacement strategy for uh, if a hunger striker dies, another one would take his place. So I went over to him. Um, it was myself and him. I think Jake Jackson met him along with me, and he goes up and. He was looking for tobacco and he was looking for smuggled notes and there was about 80 prisoners or so in, in the small canteen all hot, huddling about waiting for the priest to come in. And he says, well, everything okay with you? Me? Yeah, fine. I said, you have a visit tomorrow with your family and, 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 and you know, first day on the hunger strike tomorrow. And, and he says, uh, uh, or no, the hunger strike was on the start of the Sunday, the 1st of March, that's right. So I said to him, uh, look, um, Arango okay? says, yes, by the way, he says, that replacement strategy? I says, no, no, that's that's all sorted. Don't worry, it's okay. Yeah, you sure? I says, yeah, it's okay. Because we had all sorts of names and there was a list had been drawn up. And he says, who did you pick to replace me? And I was I was a wee bit sort of taken aback, you know, that this was a very final sort of a, a question that, you know, I said, well, 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 um, now you shouldn't be worried about that. I says, you know, you concentrate tomorrow your visit. And, and he says, hold on a second. Who did you get to replace me? And I says, well, look, everything's in place. And he, he, he got serious. And he says, look, you better have your head around all this, he says. Because he says, see, in two months, I'm not going to be here. I'm not be talking to you. So you need to know what you're doing and where you're going. So I'll ask you one more time. Who did you pick to replace me? And I looked at Jake and I looked back and I said, well, if you must know, I says, it's, uh, it's Joe McDonald. And he says, just a wee second. But, you know, he just took a wee second. And he says, that's a good choice. He says, see, Joe McDonald never let you down a million years. He says, he never let you down. And it was a, you know, it was a big moment of, of, of emotional charge. And then in the next breath, he says to me, who did you say I had the tobacco? I need figs. I need tobacco, smuggled tobacco. And I says, Philip has it, he's down with a priest in the back. Right, I'll see you in a minute. And away he went. So it was just that quick flip. And the two of us were mesmerized, just sort of blown away. And then when I'm at his bedside on the hunger strike, a couple of months later, it's, it's the same, he knew. 
because he said to me, but a short conversation, I don't think I was there 15 minutes, tell you the truth. And once that, he just said to me, uh, uh, that's it. I says, yeah, they, they, won't, they won't let that in. He says, well, I think that's it. And then I says, well, I didn't want to keep pressing him and laboring him, you know, because he was tired. And I says, right, I'll, 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 I'll go then. And he says, yeah, yeah, well, I think that's it. He says, I'm dying, Cara, I'm dying. And I knew at that minute that that was, that I wasn't going to see him again. So I left and went back to the to the wing. And again, on May the 5th, we were listening to these smuggled radios. And you, you could hear these wee crystal sets. And you could hear the uh, the news every hour. And, uh, you know, coming towards that weekend, his family were sent for. And then they were talking about the laboured breathing. And then in and out of a coma. And... Absolutely heartbreaking listening to it. And then uh, it announced that I got the news at two o'clock in the morning on the 5th at, uh, of May that uh, I remember, I even remember the, the, the newscaster saying that, that at 1.17 a.m. Uh, IRA hunger striker and MP Bobby Sands has died on hunger strike. And uh, everybody was wrecked. Everybody was just totally and absolutely devastated. So we just... I woke up by cellmate and told him, and then it topped down at the side of the papers, the heating papers, there's a big steel bar, and you plate, and you wrap that you password down the down through the cells. And everybody was was devastated. And we get into the next day, and, and it was one of those days, like limbo. I don't think, I, apart from I wrote a small call to leadership, I don't think I did anything. I can't remember doing anything or really engaging with anybody or, or, or doing anything. It was just like numb. And then the awful reality sinks in that Francis Hughes is two weeks behind Bobby Sands and Raymond McCreese and Patsy O'Hara are two weeks behind Francis Hughes. Nobody was going anywhere. Nobody was doing anything. And you were sitting with the awful inevitability of just waiting for them to die. And it was absolutely horrendous. And then we moved with the replacement strategy a few days just after the funeral. And Joe McDonald entered the hunger strike, which sent a signal to everybody that this wasn't going away. No matter what you do, no matter what you try and do, we are here. This is a hunger strike to the death. We are determined to see this through. So it then continued. Now, we can just work our way through that period. Uh, the other lads, again, as I say, you know, this awful inevitability of waiting for them to die. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people at their funerals. And then you moved into a, a longer period of waiting again until... Joe McDonald had the crisis period. But by this stage, I was getting up and in and out of the... I got up to the prison hospital uh, for before Joe McDonald died. And I was in talking to him. The Irish Commission for Justice and Peace came in. Irish politicians have been in. English politicians. Uh, the Pope sent an envoy. And all sorts of people in and out had been with Bobby Sands and then... You know, the International Red Cross was in during the course of it. And, and, and you're dealing with all these people where people, where, where lads are dying on hunger strike. And uh, 
it, it was you're sitting with them in a canteen up there, and one of them has only been on the hunger strike a week, and another one is a week from death's door, and they're all chatting away to you and and, and uh, making you comfortable. I mean, I remember uh, being sent up or gone up, and the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace came in, and Joe McDonald was. Uh, in a bad situation, you know, not the Joe McDonald that I knew. Uh, he was sort of hunched over in a wheelchair. And uh, this was about three, four days before he died. He could hardly hear, he could hardly see. And his key concern was to make sure that I was comfortable. Get him a fag. I says, don't smoke, Joe. Get him, get a jug of water for him and get a chair, pull a chair up beside me where I can hear him. And, you know, me, me. He was at pains to make sure I was comfortable. I can come back to my cell two hours later, you know, and this is a man who's down in hunger strike. And, you know, his, his, his passing words to me that I'll never forget were, I don't care what negotiations are going on, whoever's offered anything. He says, I'm telling you, he says, Joe McDonald's strong. And I'm telling you, see whatever time's needed. I'll get whatever time's needed uh, to bring this day an end. But see before you leave here, don't you under any circumstances, he says, think that you're going to sell short of five demands on Joe McDonald's account. He says, it's five demands. You go out of here and you remember. He says, that Joe McDonald has told you that. And I says, fair enough, Joe, no problem, I'll be. He said, don't you be accepting anything less on my account. And then Joe died about two or three days later. And there was all this recriminations with the Brits and the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace because the Brits sold them down the river. And uh, we told them that at the time they wouldn't believe it. They had delusions of grandeur about the importance of their role and the, the clout that they had. They even used the term, do you understand what clout we have? And I said, it's the British government to deal with. I don't care who you are, what you are. They'll flush you down the toilet in two seconds when they need to do it. As, as we can see, that's happening over all this Brexit stuff today as well. So, I mean, Joe McDonald died, and then the, 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 the background uh, channel, you know, for, for, for dealing with our people, they had let Danny Morrison in prior to that to talk to me and to talk to hunger strikers. And Danny had actually cautioned me, he says, just be careful about building your hopes up, he says, because... Um, this could be another element in their whole machinations of building you up so that when they do hit you, 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 you think you have a positive thing coming here, and the next thing, you get hit full square in the face, he says, you get devastated. Far worse than ever, he says, and it's harder to get back from it. Just bear in mind that they may be playing politics, which is precisely what they were doing. Well, the hunger strike continued, and, uh, and as you know, it continued to uh, October the 3rd uh, of that year. Uh, when it ended, and the key reason, the key reason uh, for it coming to an end, uh, with the other lads dying, of course, and uh, I was up visiting them. Sometimes they were in a coma and I couldn't talk to them, and it was just hard going, you know, to sit sit with lads that you knew and friends and comrades, and watch them sort of ebb painfully, agonizingly, slowly away. And uh, what had happened was. Uh, one of the, the mothers, one of the hunger strikers, when her son lapsed into a coma, she ordered medical intervention as next to kin. And the medics provided it. 
and he recovered. Now, this happened on two or three occasions where family members intervened, the next of kin intervened when their, the, the hunger striker went into a coma and they sought medical attention. And that rendered hunger strike action totally and absolutely useless because, you know, what do you do? It, it meant that if you travel along the road for the next hunger striker to die, is, is it because just to prove a point that somebody can die? And that's not what it's about. It's about using hunger strike to force the opposition to a closer position to you or to your position. So what happened was um, we asked um, the army outside to contact all the families and find out how many of them, in all honesty, were going to intervene. And practically all except one, and I don't even know which one, that told me that they're all going to intervene except one, which means continuing this hunger strike action is a waste. You know, it's a terrible waste. So I went to the prison hospital at the end of September, start of October, got them all in. Pat Sheehan was on 54 days at the time, was in bed, got all the lads in, talked to the whole lad, and told them that they needed to make a decision in relation to it. So the decision was that if everybody's going to intervene, there's no point in continuing with this because they're doing damage themselves to do what? And the Brits knew that that was it. So it was called off uh, on the three o'clock on the Saturday. And uh, it was this massive, massive relief. It's almost physical. Nobody else was going to die. Uh, and another point during the course of that year, that hunger strike period, you know, you had about 63 or 65 people killed on the streets. That included Brits, Peelers, IRA volunteers, kids killed with plastic bullets, civilians killed. Uh, horrendous, horrendous uh, year altogether. And we, at the end of it then, at that particular period, I was just so relieved that nobody else, nobody else was going to die on hunger strike. So that in a sense, I know it's maybe a long way of getting through it from, from protest days right through, but that culminated uh, the hunger strike ended that Saturday in October, the 3rd of October, uh, with the, the deaths of 10 very, very courageous uh, hunger strikers who did so much for freedom in this country and whose legacy is there for all to see. And we're 40 years down the line, and I said at the start, I find it difficult to believe that it's 40 years on that, um, from that awful, awful period. And uh, again, you know, I meet some of their families every so often and, you know, chat and talk to them. And sometimes doing this type of thing, especially their family members about it, can be very, very highly emotionally charged. Uh, and dealing with it. We've had some of the families up visiting the prison hospital when we were able to get in uh, a lot of years ago. And I have to say, you know, there's times that I couldn't speak when they were talking about, yes, I visited our son so here, or I was here, and I remember just before he died, and, oh, just awful stuff. But look, um, I hope that has been some information for you in terms of... Um, the hunger strike year and what took place during the course of that year. There are a lot of other factors in and around it that they just don't have time to, to draw out and go through. But I have to say, every single one of them impressed me beyond belief. All of them were ordinary working class guys 
working class backgrounds from working class areas, both from urban and rural. Country boys, city boys, no big shakes about any of them. They moved to do extraordinary things when the gauntlet was thrown down to them. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating because the politics of where we are today, coming out of that hunger strike period, certainly galvanized our struggle and certainly set you know, the ground stone for, for, for the enhancement and development of Republican politics that has brought us down the road to where we are today. Questions-wise, Brick, I'll start off with this one that I've got, mate, which is, you know, people spoke about the obvious role of those actually on the strike and, you know, everything that they went through and the effect on their families outside. But for, you know, the people not on the strike, with important roles such as yourself as as OC at the time and you spoke, you know, those doing PR that you mentioned before, those who were just other volunteers that were imprisoned, obviously they had a completely different struggle and, and role to those actually refusing food and those on, on hunger strike. But for them, you know, to keep up morale and, and see their their comrades and their, their, their friends, you know, potentially dying in, in the same prison block so close to them. You know, how how do you think that affected them sort of only being seen to be on the sidelines type thing? Yeah, that that's actually an excellent point. And, and, and one of the key points is in terms of those people affected mostly with the families, you know, and, and none of us should take away from the fact that no matter what way it affects me or how much pressure I was under or anybody around me or other prisoners, you know, people who were good friends of, of, of the hunger strikers, close comrades and close friends, some grew up with them, that when, when, when you look at the newspaper cutting, you know, of Bobby Sands' wee lad walking behind the coffin, or you see his mother getting out of the prison van saying, you know, my son is dying, you know, you know, or Joe McDonald's wee lad hanging over the, 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 the flag draped coffin. It's then, you know, it, it, it's in those images that, that, that people like me, who obviously, I mean, I, like everybody else, felt sorry for myself on numbers of occasions. Why am I in this situation? These walls are closing in on me. I can't do this anymore. But the minute that you look at that, and you, you, you look at the families and you say to yourself, how can I even begin to understand the emotional charge, the heartache, the hardship, the pressure, the stress? I'm not even in the same league. And that is one thing that helped for me to get up the next day and say, I need to do better today than yesterday. Uh, and I need to do better tomorrow than I do today. Now, it has affected people uh, all over the place. You know, I mean, I, I, I know I will meet people regularly, people who were key involved at that period and who are key involved today in development. Some of them elected reps, some of them looking after the likes of that Conley Centre in the Falls Road. And, you know, on a hunger strike anniversary or something, and you go in and, and you can see, you don't have to say, you know, I was up at the graveyard or you can just see just with a nod of the head anniversary of the day, you know, you, and you can feel it. So the impact, and it's 40 years down the lane, 
the impact of it has been massive. It has affected considerable amounts of people, and again, particularly the families. Uh, for the families, and I talked to somebody there not too long ago, uh, for them, this happened last week, not 40 years ago. This, this is how they feel. This is how they live this. Their loved one, their hunger striker who died, died last week. Not 40 years ago. For them, it's last week. And this is the way they live with it. And for some of them, the impact has been massive. See, it has left an indelible mark on me and anybody else who was in there, who was involved with them or involved with any of the hunger strikers. There's no question about it. And thanks for, for raising that because uh, it, it reminds me that when I get out of jail, the first time in parole, very first parole, and I was among the missing list from 75, apart from the escape, until uh, 1998 or 1984 was my first parole. So I was almost 20 years out of sync, right? The first people I went to were five wee women's houses in Ardoyne that I could have went into and lifted my rifle from below their bed in 1972. That's the first thing that I'd done. And they haven't said nothing to anybody about anything. All the years, we were able to go in, get fed in their houses, and nobody knows them, and nobody knows who they are, and they're not, as you say, known. And that's the first thing I did. Moved around four or five houses of people who watered us, fed us, and put our weapons below their beds. And had all, everything to lose, but they looked after us. And they didn't make any bones about it. They didn't want any medals. They didn't want known for it. And we respected that. And, and for me, uh, these people are the unknown heroes of, you know, the unspoken, the unspoken heroes. So I appreciate you, you, you mentioning that there. How important do you think back that education is today for younger people, you know, to understand what lay behind the hunger strikes and what it meant to those on it and, you know, the families of uh, those on it? Well, education as a question is crucial, irrespective of what uh, aspect of life you're in. Uh, in terms of understanding life, education is crucial and in terms of understanding the politics of where you are and where you're going and what's happening for example you know how many people understand what Boris Johnson said you know you know anybody who gets a political education at all can look at it and say here we go again we're going to get sold down the river so uh, although I suppose in a sense with Boris you don't need an education to realize what a buffoon he is right so uh, it's crucial for us and, and today uh, we have people who are in elected positions today, who don't have the same history as me, who don't have that baggage that I have, right? Although a lot of our elected reps are, are, are former prisoners, but there are a lot of people that I deal with on a weekly basis here, ones over at the Connolly Centre, even the FELA, the FELA have young people who are Republicans and uh, educated university graduates. And I think it's crucial, people with a political understanding and economic understanding, we encourage people to get that education, to have that bedrock of understanding what way society works and if they want to make some form of contribution to do that. And in terms of looking at the historical aspects and the crucial aspects of the, the legacy of the hunger strikes, that's crucial as well. People need to understand, people need to, to look at it. And, and again, I, I deal a lot obviously not the last year and a half or so, but with American students who used to come here. And up until about six or seven years ago, I was able to bring 
you know, 20 odds of them into the Hays Blacks for a tour. Because when Jerry Kelly became junior minister, it was his responsibility along with Jeffrey Donaldson or Paisley Jr. in the DUP. Because we, he came into the office one day and he says, guess what? Me what? We own a prison. And it was in 2001 when the NIO handed over to the assembly. And I said, what are we going to do with that? He says, well, we need to get, uh, get people in, show people what it was, educate people to what happened politically, militarily, do the whole nine yards. He says, the only thing about it is there's a whole series of stuff that you need to do in relation to this. What He says, well, an application has to go in. It needs approved by both us, the two departments, which would have been Martin McGuinness's department and Paisley's department, and the two junior ministers would have been responsible. And I said to Kelly, what's the crack? Well, application forms, formal words, etc." I said, have you not got enough to do uh, with, with, without worrying about all that? Uh, oh, he says, no, I'm not doing that. I said, who the fuck's going to do that? And he says, you are. So I ended up for years with a, with a job of, of, of managing people because you needed MLA improvement going in and out of that prison. But the educate we put down on the form, See part and parcel of the application. See if you'd have put in an application form because it needed dual approval by Sinn Féin, the DUP. See if you're written on, the, on an application form, reason for visit. We couldn't even put tours. It had to be site visit, a tour suggested politics. So they wouldn't even agree to that. A, a form of words had to be agreed for the, for, for the, to get a tour. So many people at the time. So I actually put down the same question that he asked me was about education, uh, educational aspect, reason for visit, historical and educational. See, have you had a put on your application form? Want to visit the site where the hunger strikers died and the great escape took place? See, in the DUP section, your application would be on an in-tray for three months. It would have been sitting on an in-tray for three months and you had a hard job of getting a green tick Whereas we just ticked the boxes and it ended up there had to be a relationship between our office and the DUPs so that when they saw my name on the bottom of an application, short, short, yes, no, uh, education, uh, historical thing, they, they would have ticked the box and, and cleared the application, even to the extent that a civil servant phoned me one day and he says, um, oh, uh, those applications for, for, for two weeks time. Yeah, what's the problem? Um, the, the DUP have cleared them before your own people. But my, my lane manager was away on my lane manager in Martin McGuinness's office was away on holidays and the DUP had just, oh, I agree, that's great, no problem, let them go ahead. So I had to wait till, till she come back from holidays to get a, a tick on the box, you know. So the civil servant was making a joke about it. But educating people, we bring them round there. And I would do Zoom meetings with these American students what they call college, it's the same as uni here, right? Uh, they say that the tours that they did, they go to the Giants Causeway, they go to Stormont, they go, they go to Galway, they go to all the places, right? This is up, up until about five, six years ago. Highlighted the tour, H-blocks, hunger strikers, escapes, all the rest of it. You're able to do it with them. And the civil servant would have allowed me to do the whole run of it, you know? So, Education is crucial to any organization or any body of people trying to grow progressively forward. So uh, I hope that has gone some way to answer that one. 
Was there any disagreements back within the leadership after the time of Bobby Sands' death? As you know, it obviously would have been quite a turbulent time. Well, you know, see, people sort of think that, you know, first of all, the IRA, as it was, was all, yes, sir, no, sir, feedback, all, sir, and the Sinn Féin was the same. But, I mean, uh, there's disagreements all the time. There's differences of opinion. Uh, we, we tend not to do them in a public forum. Uh, I mean, the key disagreement for the hunger strikes at the very start was that the IRA, if the IRA had to get their hands in my throat, that it choked the living daylights out of me, they were saying, no, no, no. And they were telling Bobby Sands the same, you know, get a grip, are you people crazy? You know what I mean? You know, this is the, because they were looking at the politics in a wider sphere than people in prison. And so there was disagreement, there was an argument. They were totally and absolutely opposed to hunger strike. But realizing that they had a body of people because there were, when the hunger strike started, there was 500 Republicans on protest. And when you think of the boys in the cages, another couple of hundred, you had anything up to about a thousand Republicans in prison. Now you think of a thousand Republicans and you multiply that by their families. The area could be in, 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 in a difficult situation and answering questions in those days of their saying, you can't do this, you can't do it. And families are saying, hold on a wee minute. Our, our sons, our brothers, our husbands, that this is what they want to do, you know. So there were disagreements, there were arguments, uh, and uh, you resolve them by going through it, putting down different uh, scenarios. And, and if you can't match that, then you move on. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, in the aftermath of Bobby Sands and the replacement strategy coming in, people were saying, you know, you know where are you going with this? What can you do with this? You know, and the, the, the difficulty is when you're arguing with people, underpinning the argument is saying, well, how, how do we get out of it? You know, what, what do we do? Do we surrender? Do we just say to the Brits, yeah, go ahead, do what you want? Couldn't do that. We can never do that. Now, when you, when you take the end of the hunger strike, once we come into the end of it, you see, because we had lost 10 comrades and come through five years of hell, and brutality. Every single person who was on that protest was determined to hammer the living daylights out of Maggie Thatcher. Now, the, the, the hunger strikes themselves had hammered Thatcher anyway, but we were determined to hammer the Brits. And within two years, we pulled off the biggest escape in the history of any of our prisons here, in the history of it. And uh, it rammed it right up, right up their faces, that if you think for one second that we've gone this is well, this is another thing to think of. What would you say in general terms back would have been the legacy of the strikes going forward? You know, would it have been the blanket men themselves or would you say it would have been, you know, the wider struggle? Well, the the, the legacy of the hunger strike is it, it, it is clearly the wider struggle. It's not just to do with us who were who were in the prison, right? Because what, what I believe happened with Bobby Sands' election to Westminster, the Brits had said that, you know, the hunger strikes were Sinn Féin playing their last card and, you know, the Republicans playing or the IRA playing its last card and that um, they only had 0.1% support of people. And then Bobby Sands ramped the Fermanagh South Tyrone by-election by the biggest number ever and hammered the key unionist and became 
the MP, the Right Honourable Bobby Sands for Fermanagh South Tyrone, which drew the support ratio away up right into everybody's faces that these people do have support, do have support. So the politics of that and then the nature of galvanising the support and channeling that support base in the aftermath of the hunger strikes or, or through the hunger strikes when, when Kieran Doherty got a, elected and Paddy Agnew got elected. Uh, Paddy Agnew wasn't a hunger striker, but he got elected in Louth. Uh, when they got elected, uh, the implications for that cost uh, Charlie Harvey uh, his election in the South. Uh, so it was having an impact. And then when you move forward into 82, the terms of, of, of galvanizing the support that came out of the hunger strikes and channeling it into a progressive political machine that could go forward, even though we were going in at that stage on an abstentionist ticket for the first assembly in 1982, with I think Martin McGuinness, Jerry Adams, uh, Danny Morrison, I'm not sure, Francie Malloy, um, uh, Martin McGuinness maybe at the, at the time, or, 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 or I can't remember, with five people elected that, all abstentionist um, politics. But it gave people this sense of, we're not going back down into the gutter, we're up and we're at it. And whatever means we need to use in terms of developing our politics and developing our struggle, whether it's moving into councils, which we did do. We're now the biggest party in Belfast City Council. right? Moving in and moving forward and grabbing the nettle and saying this is the way, this is one of the ways that we can forward this struggle. There's no question about it. The legacy of the hunger strikes is clearly, clearly the path forward and the expansion and enhancement of Republican politics all the way down the road. We have never gone down. We've always gone up and up and forward and forward. And younger people coming through today who know about the hunger strikes, who've read about them, who, who, who study them. I mean, pe people talk about what book do you read or what's the best? You know, I would say 10 Men Dead by David Beresford, even over and above the one that we wrote ourselves, which was just re-released there two months ago. Lawrence McKeown got it re-released uh, or meekly served my time, you call it. I think Beresford's book is a better book. Now, most of our people say to me, you're wrong, but that's just my, my own opinion. But certainly reading stuff like that, reading about the hunger strikers, understanding who they were, what they were, where they came from, uh, is crucial. It's also part of education to look at some young people coming through education. I mean, Kevin Lynch was a sportsman. Kevin Lynch has an All-Ireland medal, you know, Harland medal in under 16. Kevin Lynch played in England, you know, for, for a team, and if I'm not mistaken, then around Hereford. He, he, he played for a Gillick team over there and uh, was greatly praised by that club over there uh, after he died in hunger strike. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's certainly crucial to the development of, of our politics and our struggle. They, they played an absolute major, major role uh, uh, for the development of the, of the struggle. Towards the end of the strike back when some of the families then intervened you know was there any sort of ill feeling towards the families no no none, none whatsoever none whatsoever but I'll I, I tell you I'll tell you a story Lawrence McKeown's mother Lorna McKeown was 71 71 days 72 days 71 days in hunger strike and his mother intervened when he went into a coma so 
Let's just look at that. He goes into a coma. See, as far as I'm concerned, Lorne McKeown's a dead hunger striker. Then his mother intervened and got him medical attention. And I know, because him and me are the best of mates, I know that it took him the guts of a year to mend the relationship with his mother because initially he wouldn't forgive her for intervening after he had asked, this is the way I you know, want to go. So it took, it took uh, a long period of time for him to, uh, to deal with that, you know. So in terms of ill feeling, no, none whatsoever. It was just that, in fact, somebody from the outset, one of our leaders actually said to me, do you know what? I'm surprised this never happened before. I'm not surprised it never happened before this, that, you know, at this stage. And once it started, it, it, it was rolling on. And uh, when, when you think of, of a mother, a wife, or, or a family member looking at someone that they dearly love and dearly don't want to lose, you know that they're going to do everything conceivable to keep them alive. And there is no uh, feeling of ill will or anything. There's perfect understanding as to why people move uh, in those circumstances. What I will say is this. Uh, the Catholic Church had priests and bishops talking about, Father Fall was one of the people in question, about the good Catholic mother. Now, the good Catholic mother, and it was put in terms of does she allow a son who is not in control of his senses to drive his soul to the afterlife of, 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 of fucking burning in hell? Or does she help to, 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 save, to save his soul? That argument was actually put to one of the mothers that, you know, the good Catholic mother would act in a good Catholic way and not allow her son to commit a mortal sin by throwing his life away. So the, the impact of that as well it's huge. You know, when you take the background, probably to most of our, our, our prisoners, you know, around the place, you know, obviously mostly brought up Catholics. There's very, very few that I know would, would, would not have been. There's a couple like our lads up around my neck of the woods weren't Catholics, but uh, mostly Catholic upbringing and, and, and this sense of, 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 you know, religious fervor, uh, especially with the parents. And, and it had an impact. But certainly there was no no feeling of ill will. In fact, you know, people were saying, Jesus, that must have been an awful, awful trial for that woman to do, for that mother or that wife, you know, to go through to this stage, to have to drag the whole way through this and then, you know, to take the decision that they did. But the way we looked at it was, fait accompli, this is what it is. We now need to move to, to, to do something uh, that, that can move us along out of this here. But uh, certainly not. I never detected anything in any circumstances of ill will towards any families at all. And just lastly, Vic, this one is one from our own guys within the actual podcast. They say, or they ask, sorry, that with this episode probably going to blow the roof off our, our listener count. Uh, if we could... Maybe chance her arm and ask if a you know a further episode would be possible for you to come on and, and speak again on that escape from the jail in, in nineteen eighty three. 
<laughs> well, now, the thing about it is, I know it's just about an hour and a half on this hunger strike talk, but uh, I remember we, we, we did the escape talk, Jerry Kelly and Bobby Story. God, I miss, miss him terribly. We did that with PowerPoint presentation. We did it over in the PD club and did it all over the place. And uh, Bobby Story was a stand-up comedian. So the escape talk would have been like a more... Well, well, the political significance and the military significance was, was hammered. It was more like a lighthearted view. And you got lots, lots of laughs. But I remember sitting one night and going through it and saying to somebody over the microphone, folks, you know, I hope you're okay. It has taken us three times longer to tell this than it did to actually escape, you know, because uh, the first time we did the talk, it took us three and a half hours, you know what I mean? That was about 30 minutes to get out of the place. So if you're talking about it, you know, you can uh, exaggerate and over-egg it. But no, there'd, there'd be no problem doing that. But uh, I don't know what way you would you would structure that. But I mean, I have no problem in answering questions about about anything like that. If it's a question and answer type thing, uh, and uh, I just can't see me at the minute wanting to be on a stage to do that performance game without Bobby Story. It just wouldn't be, you know, couldn't. I couldn't imagine it, you know, driving force. He was a driving force behind the escape, you know, along with a few others. But um, it's uh, it's hard losing him and uh, missing him is, is uh, it's a year ago in June. You know, it's hard to believe. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I can certainly talk about it in, in, a, in a format like this. It's possible. So just to say a big, big thanks to Bick again for, you know, taking the time out to... Come on and speak with us as I'd, I'd said there about probably going to break uh, break the Spotify with a listener count for this one, but not just it was an honour to have back on and to listen listen to him speaking. the The whole series throughout the year has been has been brilliant. You know, every single person that's come on, it's just been I'm sure I, I speak on behalf of everybody that's listened in when I say that it's just been not just for me, you know been a part of it but actually listening to these guys speaking and listening to their, their first hand experiences of, of what happened all those years ago it's been it's been cracking and, and as I said another cracking episode to, to round it off to round off the, the anniversary year and I just big big thanks to all you guys again for for tuning in to us I hope we all had a good Christmas and I should be out before the new year if it's not shouldn't be too longer after the new year but I hope you have a good one as well so aye as I, as I touched on earlier I hope it's not too long until we're back in the ground and we can kick on with what we've planned and, and everything that we've got going on for the rest of the season so aye cheers guys we're up. We're up.